This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Alcesser. For a full year, we're looking at the life, teachings, and works of Jesus Christ from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Ben, last week we, we looked at Jesus as he was preparing his disciples for his death and resurrection. Even though we're m- moving toward halfway through this study, we are closer to the end of his life than the beginning of his ministry because of how the Gospels are laid out. And so he's beginning to think about his disciples and how they will lead in his absence. And he continues to do preparation work. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18 as he's preparing them for ministry in a sinful world. You know, Jesus came to die for our sins. He's the Lamb of God, took away the sins of the world. So if he takes away the sins of the world, then why do we need to worry about ministry in a sinful world? There's a good zinger opener for you. (laughs) I never know where you're going. going to go here. Me either. Uh, (laughs) That's great. We'll just let the spirit lead. Um, No, I mean, sin still exists. Depravity still exists. You know, God is is rooting out sin uh, in the life of the Christ follower through the work of the Spirit, um, and uh, and in that, you know, we will continuously live uh, in a sinful a sinful world. Um, Christ died for sin; He died to reconcile us to the Father, that we would know of His embrace, that we would know of His belovedness, that we would know of His forgiveness. But uh, but we will continue to wrestle with sin until the day we die. You know, you used the word depravity there a moment ago. That takes me back a long, long time ago when I was writing my papers for ordination in the United Methodist Church. And I used the word depravity more than once in my ordination papers. And um, there, were, there were some in my interview triad who really questioned me on the use of that word. Maybe it, it seemed to, I don't know, what would be the word, Calvinistic or Presbyterian or, or something for the United Methodist way. Um, because I, I, don't, I wonder if times like we just don't want to think about depravity or brokenness or sinfulness that still exists in the world and still exists in our own lives. And that must be rooted out, really, that. I can't say what was in the hearts of those who were interviewing me. All I was doing was biting my fingernails, hoping they would say, pass, and, and let me be ordained. But it, it has been a, a continual theme that I've run up against, perhaps, in some ways, that we just don't like to think about sin, do we? No, no, we don't. And, and the crazy part is, uh, for me, especially within the life of the Christ follower, is that, you know, when we consider sin, it's, it's anything opposed to the will of God, anything uh, opposed to his created intent, and ultimately anything opposed to his love. And so as a follower of Christ, while I wrestle with sin, I want it rooted out of my life because I want to be more like Jesus. I want to uh, radiate more fully his love in the world, his joy in the world, his peace, his patience, all of these things that, that we should prize as a believer in Christ, and sin strips away uh, those things from us. 
I don't want to live in brokenness. I want to more fully radiate and reflect the wholeness of Christ, his redemptive love. And so a lot of times I think when we look at at sin, when we when we consider sin, um, a lot of times it's the idea of of uh, sadly, crazy enough. I mean, there, there's a lot of sinful behaviors that the world might perceive as fun or even life giving. Um, but Christ says no, and so I want more of Jesus ultimately in my life, and so I I, I want those things rooted out of me. Yeah, I agree. Jesus Jesus here is dealing with the reality of that, just what you've said, and the reality of it in the future. And even in the church, he uses the word church in Matthew 18. We're going to pick it up at verse 15, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. This seems to go against the grain of the the idea of, you know, if you're if your brother has a little bitty speck in his eye and you've got a two by four sticking out of your eye, deal with your own thing first. Jesus here is, is talking in particular about brother with brother, sister with sister, people, a Christian with Christian, and saying that when they sin, some manuscripts I believe say when they, if they sin against you, you go and point it out just between the two of you, one-on-one. Don't make a public spectacle of it. Don't put it on social media, I suppose. Just go to them one-on-one and deal with it. It says, if they listen to you, you've won them over. I wonder if that first step is the hardest for people, the, the hardest for, for people to simply say, you know, you're, a, you're my brother in faith, and, and I, I want to come to you, Ben, and, and say this, or you come to me and say, Mark, I want, I want to speak this. And that one-to-one personal connection, confrontation, in which you would have the courage to come to me as a brother in Christ to point something out. And if I'm willing to listen, then all is well. I mean, we're, we win. We, I've been won over. Do you think that's the hardest step of all of this? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a, you know, multifaceted here. Um, one is, you know, Jesus's words in Matthew 18, obviously, uh, don't discount his earlier words uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 7. And so as I encounter my brother's sin, it does create uh, humility. It should create humility in my own heart to consider my own life before Christ, uh, that God would reveal to me the, the, you know, the proverbial plank in my eye. Um, so as I encounter my brother's sin, as I encounter my sister in Christ's sin, my disposition should be one of humility, recognizing that I also wrestle with sin. So what is that sin in, in my own life that I need to, to deal with? And then seeing that sin, and going to my brother or my sister in a spirit of, of humility, uh, recognizing my equal dependence upon the, the grace of God, the redemptive love of God, then I go and I, I, I'm freed in some, in some sense to go and point out uh, the sin in my brother's life. And in doing so, uh, even pointing out the sin in my own life, uh, affirming that you know the ground is level uh, at the foot of the cross, affirming... The, 
our equal need for God's grace, uh, but, but in no means minimizing my sin, minimizing the sin of my brother and seeking to point that out. And yeah, it does take an element of courage because our disposition is to run away uh, from any kind of confrontation. Our, our disposition is to some, a lot of times not to do the hard work of love. But if I love my brother in Christ and I see my brother sinning against God, uh, basically giving himself over to dysfunction, giving himself over to brokenness, the hard work of love is to go point that out. The hard work of love is to call uh, my brother to repentance, that he would once again align himself uh, with the love and truth of God, align, see his heart aligned with the heart of Jesus Christ. But it often feels more loving, or it's been redefined as being more loving, if we give others a pass, or if we even encourage their their choices their and say you know, that this is their choice and how they're living and it must be good and right and holy because it it is admittedly a difficult thing to step into someone's life because then the accusations can be made you know you're a hypocrite or holier than thou or, or all those kind of things and if you can come with that humility that you're speaking about I, I believe that would help Yet I have my experience is that most of us aren't very good at this step one of going one to one with somebody. We'd rather talk about them behind their back or put it on social media or or whatever else in sort of a passive, maybe passive aggressive way to to root it out or to or bring or make awareness to it rather than a personal sit down. Well, the scripture goes on in verse sixteen, where Matthew eighteen. Verse 16, but if they will not listen, Jesus gives that as a real possibility. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if they won't listen, get a small gathering of people who also see the choices that the person is making and share it with them. Again, this may feel like ganging up. It, it kind of almost feels counterintuitive to all we need to do is, is love people, love one another. But it's, it's truly loving them, I believe, as you're saying. In verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, because now it's you and two or three others, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. You know, I wonder, does that mean like stand up on Sunday morning and make an announcement or does it mean talk to the leadership in the church or, or, or what does that mean? It's, it's highly debated, I believe, what, what that means and what that looks like. Yet I will say this, churches aren't real good at this. And the ones that do it a lot are often doing it too much, maybe, and, and throwing people out for minor things in legalistic cultures. So this is a tough, a tough tightrope to walk, it seems to me, in a, in a world in which we feel like either you're going to be legalistic or you're going to completely allow people to do whatever they want, whatever they choose, everybody did was right in their own eyes. It goes on to say, if you tell it to the church, and if they still refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Interesting choice of words. 
how you would how do you think they would are supposed to treat a pagan or a tax collector yeah when I, what jesus reveals i think in in the passage um kind of the overarching theme is for the sake of love we're going to treat sin seriously and so again because we love our brother or sister we're going to pursue them call them to repentance and so if if that brother or sister doesn't listen to the to the single you know to the singular voice to the person who initially goes then bringing it to a group of fellow uh, brothers or, or and sisters in in Christ and allowing for uh, seemingly like a group intervention. And if they refuse to listen to the, to the group, bringing it to the body of Christ, expanding that group intervention, which again, people might look at that through the lens of being overly judgmental rather than looking at it through the lens of love. As a follower of Christ, we look at it through the lens of love. We also recognize that as we, to your point, as we go to hold someone accountable, that accountability happens under the objective authority of God's word. And so it's not some made up law that exists uh, within the body of Christ, but it's somebody coming uh, to another with the scripture open and saying, this is what I see. This is where uh, I don't believe, I don't see your life aligned with Christ. And so that's the other aspect of this, I think, too, is that it's, it's the word itself. It's not uh, simply some made-up uh, notion of, of what sin is, but it's, it's actually bringing somebody uh, under the authority of God's self-revelation and saying this is God's self-revelation of his love, this is God's self-revelation of what he desires from his people, your life is not aligned uh, with that. I'm, I'm begging you. I'm calling you to repentance because I love you, because I want you to know the fullness of God's desire and will uh, for your life, the greater joy that is in Christ, not in our sin. But that's where true joy is found. It's found in Jesus. Um, and sadly, we, we live in a, in, in a culture, in a world where oftentimes, uh, you know, people pursue joy through uh, sinful means. And so, uh, so when we see that happening again in a brother or sister in Christ being able to do the hard work of love and pursue them. And so even as, as Christ, uh, caught, and, and part of the, the idea here, I think too, with if, if they remain unrepentant, basically excommunicating them from the church, Unrepentance leads to disunity and dysfunction within a church body. Now, Jesus encourages patience here. And so there's multiple layers of pursuit um, in, in calling somebody to repentance. And so there's an element of patience, of, of persistence that comes. But if the person is just absolutely um, rebelling against God, then Christ is saying they don't need to be, if they're rebelling against the sanctifying uh, community, I mean, our community exists, the church community exists as a sanctifying community. We're here to nurture one another more fully into the likeness of Jesus Christ. If somebody wants no piece of that, wants no part of that, if they're living an act of rebellion against that, then Christ calls them to, to ultimately be uh, sent out of the church body. 
I don't think, though, that having somebody sent out of the church body means that we don't continue to pursue them. Um, so that patience I, that you're talking about, I mean, Jesus really, he holds that intention in the very next episode. It begins in verse 21, if I can go there, Matthew 18, verse 21. So Peter's paying attention to everything Jesus is saying. And then in verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Of course, the, the spiritual leaders had already determined it's up to three times. They had a, a rule for it, like the Pharisees had a rule for everything. They had a rule, you could forgive someone up to three times, and after that, you don't have to forgive them any, anymore if they keep on doing it. So Peter, wanting to up the ante, goes to seven times, you know, the holy number, up to seven times. And Jesus just simply said, not, not seven times. How about 77 times? Some manuscripts, I believe, or some, some translations could see that as 70 times, seven times. And he, whether it's 77 times or 70 times seven times or 70 to the seventh power times in our world, because, you know, back then, I mean, you're not keeping track of 77 or 490. I mean, you just, you're just not in, a, in that world. In ours, we could. We'd have a little spreadsheet on our phone. We could keep track. We could keep the tallies going. But I think mean, Jesus is taking it way beyond our, our understanding. So how does, how does that tension get reconciled between, okay, go to somebody, and then if they won't listen, take two or three others. And if they won't listen, take it to the church. And then if they still won't listen, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector, which by the way, they weren't pagans and tax collectors weren't eliminated from the church. If they had a heart encounter with Jesus Christ and repentant lifestyle, they were certainly welcome into the, the body of Christ and the life of the church. So it wasn't forever being expelled. But here Jesus is taking Peter's reaction to it and say, you're missing the point. If, if someone has sinned against you personally, don't stop forgiving them. Forgive and forgive and forgive. So there's a tension, even in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, that, that seems to be there. Uh, give me some insight into that tension as you see it being laid out. The door to repentance is always uh, open. You know, I think about God's unfailing love toward me, even in the presence of my own unfaithfulness and my own failings. And that should be the disposition that I have uh, toward another. And so, you know, I have been forgiven of more than I could ever possibly conceive. Um, I continue to be forgiven of more than I could ever possibly uh, conceive. And so as I have been forgiven uh, by God through Christ, I I'm called to reveal that same uh, forgiveness. And so, you know, and it's one of the themes that continuously gets carried throughout the epistles in the New Testament. Uh, you know, Paul writing to the, the church in Colossae says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord uh, forgave you. And so in that, uh, and, and Jesus' point to Peter is you just, you keep forgiving. You have a disposition of forgiveness. You have a disposition of reconciliation. That's the heart. Uh, that's the heart that that uh, that the Christian should 
reveal in all things. We have a bent toward reconciliation as we have been reconciled to God. And so to that end, even if a, a even if it came to pass where a brother or sister had to uh, exit the church because of unrepentant sin, that would not mean that I would not continue to pursue them in love, wanting them to return uh, their life uh, to, to, to to submit their life uh, to the to the will of God, I continue to pursue them um, in all things because my heart is bent toward reconciliation. As I marvel at God's infinite love uh, toward me, that has to be my disposition toward others. Yeah, it's because sin is a big deal to God. Right. Jesus came to take away sin. So in our lives, in the reality of our lives, where sin continues and persists after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, into the future of today and beyond, sin is real and among us, and it's not becoming of a follower of Christ. So we wrestle with it, we struggle with it, we seek a way out of it. You know, I think this, there's a, there's a difference between repentant sin and celebrated sin or repentant sin and ignored sin. And sin is sin, right? It's, it's missing the mark. It's not living into, into God's best for our lives. But when we turn around and ignore it, in the sake of, I just want to love people, or celebrate it, I just want to love people, and forget that Jesus came to root that out of our lives, to change us forever. We, I think we missed the mark on that. And we are called to honest evaluation of our own lives and truly repenting of sin that's in our lives. In Romans chapter 1, at the end of it, at the end of that chapter, in verse 28, Paul writes, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. There's that tension. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul, at least, combines the two thoughts that not only is it doing it, but it's approving it. Approving these things. And it's not a list. It's not like the exhaustive list there in Romans of what is a sin and what is not. Never look at scripture like that, I don't believe. But I do believe we need to 
to honestly look at what is, what is holiness? What is righteousness? What is the life that God has called us to, to be dead to sin? And what does it mean in the church, in the body of Christ, among believers, to be willing to confront that and receive that, to confess it, to repent, and to be free from it? It's, it's a not very often talked about topic no, in the church. Which is, which is so, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Because a lot of times we allow for, uh, for, for false loves to supersede the love that God desires uh, from us and with us. And so, like, why would we not want the better love that God has revealed uh, for us to flee sin, to grieve? You know, we talk about we grieve the spirit when we are uh, living in unrepentance and when we're living in a way that contradicts the, the, the love and the goodness and the desires uh, of God. And uh, this conversation makes me think of, uh, in fact, I, I sent you the quote, I think earlier this week uh, from Tim Keller, but I had read this week, Keller had, uh, has ri- he had written this. He says, you know, contemporary people examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. Christians allow the Bible to examine them looking for things God can't accept. Hmm. And so allowing, again, allowing Scripture to interpret our lives that we would more fully seek to align ourselves with the desire of God, with the love of God, and recognizing it's a, super, a supernatural work. And so when I, when I read Scripture and I encounter, uh, through the lens of Scripture, see my own brokenness, it compels me to, to strive for holiness, an aspect of striving uh, for God's holy love and to see that reflected in my life is recognizing that I cannot uh, make it happen on my own, that I'm dependent upon the Spirit to refine uh, my heart and to renew my heart more into the likeness of Christ. And so it compels me to pray, um, to pray for the Spirit to change and transform my heart, to refine my heart, that I would come to love and to cherish that which God loves and cherishes. For as, as someone who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, how can I not long for what Christ long, wants for me? Like, why can't I, you know, how could I not trust myself to the goodness of God as he himself has revealed it to us? Tough topic today. Good discussion, I, I hope, at least for us too. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app and click on the Life of Jesus link. You'll find a lot more there in this year-long study of the life of Jesus. Until next time, God bless. We'll go, next time, we'll take a look at how Jesus expands his leadership base. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds awesome. All right. Take care, folks.